Hey, everybody. Hey, Scott. Hey, Peter. Hey. Hello. Hey, um, I just got a couple more speakers I'm trying to load here, but um, if you guys want to want to get started, um, Scott, what are you uh, what are you seeing on the ground there? What uh, what does the sentiment seem to be like in regards to uh, today's discussion topic, which is the the Bank of Canada? Uh, I guess I think most people, other than than Ian, uh, pretty shout out to Ian who was calling for 100 bips for like months now. Uh, I think everybody was kind of surprised by that. What are your thoughts there? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I don't think it was, I don't think it was not required. Um, I, I thought 75 was kind of silly when you're, when they're that far behind. I mean, they're so far behind that they think they're ahead. So, you know, in one sense, you know, nobody likes inflation. Okay. Well, if 75 isn't going to do it, then what's wrong with a hundred? I get that things are going up, but I mean, I'm sure we'll get into talk about bubbles as well, but it's weird because our, I don't know if anybody knows about this, but our, our we have a, what's called a bankruptcy homeowners index. So we track the percentage of people in a given year who file insolvencies with us who own homes. And right now it's at like less than two or 2% or something. So it's like almost nobody filing with us right now is a homeowner, at least in the last year. And it was as high as 27% in 2011. So you can see, know where it can go um it's got a long ways to go obviously to get to that but given that that so few homeowners file with us the amount of talk about rate rises in the last two months from new clients is remarkable like it's all anybody's talking about it but it's but it's related to inflation not houses right um i guess you know when you look at people who are approaching bankruptcy, it is probably more of your the prime plus stuff that really starts to put stress on, stress on the average Canadian household. Like I think last time we were on here on the macro episode, Ben Rabideau was talking about how we're sort of seeing probably one of the the greatest increases in in the cost of household indebtedness uh, overall that we've seen you know since probably the '90s, right? Um, or I guess I guess the late '80s. Um, and uh, I guess I'm just wondering, like, do you are we seeing signs yet that, that this is actually going to quantifiably impact the the, the market uh, beyond you know, almost like the forward looking buying power destruction that we've seen in in some markets in Canada on the real estate side on, on the asset prices? Um, is there you know, I think like employment numbers weren't exceptionally bad. Um are we are we seeing any any signs that, that are leading indicators that this might get get ugly on outside of housing? Um, well, from my perspective, uh, I think I think it is going to be. I, I don't think this is going to be a good ride. Um, you know, I like we things were so good for a long time, and whether you you know whether you subscribe to the notion of that being artificially propped up or not. The fact is things were good, so it doesn't really, in a way, it doesn't matter why they were good. Um, but everything has a reckoning. Um, every market bubble has an opposite reaction at some point. It doesn't have to be disastrous 1929 stuff, but even if it goes down a bit, like right now, an awful lot of things are bad, but you're right. You know, employment numbers are good which is kind of odd, but, and that's partly why we're seeing more insolvency filings because people don't file insolvencies until they're working because the threat of wage garnishing is not there. 
Um, so it's ironic, but you know, when, when COVID hit, people stopped filing, like it just went in a tank. And it's because, you know, you, you do, if you're not working, your creditors can't get your government, uh, your government income, right? Whether it's uh, EI or server, whatever. So, and so I think it's a double whammy for us. We're, we're really busy because inflation is driving people who are paycheck to paycheck over the edge. Um, we're also busy because people who have larger amounts of their unsecured debt on lines of credit, their payments have gone up because lines of credit go up with interest rates. Um, so they're pushed by, uh, by two factors, inflation and that, and we're getting people because they're working again. And so therefore their creditors are saying, okay, well, we're going to garnish your wages if you don't get, get back uh, current on your two months behind uh, situation on your payments. I appreciate the insight there, Scott. Um, what I um, maybe just touched quickly um, with Mark Morris. Mark, you mentioned a couple of trends that you're seeing on the ground um, on litigation side, uh, real estate transactions, et cetera. What, what does it look like? Because I think you're sort of further down the delivery of the resale pipeline than somebody like myself uh, or Peter, who's here, or John Pasales, who have also sent a, a speaker invite to. Um, are, are things starting to get ugly, like even uglier than they were last time we checked in? Well, I, no, last time you checked in, we were kind of in the height of surprise, right? Like we were in the, uh, we were in the period where people were trying to close deals, which were negotiated at the peak of market and thus were never expecting to encounter what they're encountering. Now, what we're experiencing is a um, bit more normalcy because most of the agreements that are in our office happened after the decline started. What we're seeing that's interesting is, um, I mean, as, as I'm sure a lot of the realtors on the channel can hear, can attest to, um, is the dynamic that is uh, people slowly coming to grips with this new reality. Uh, we're finding that unlike the past several years where negotiation was always off the table, the only thing you would ever do is tender and then move on. Uh, the, harsh reality, the harsh reality of the market and the uh, illiquid nature of some of the assets, um, they're not totally illiquid, but some, some illiquidity, means that people are now uh, finally using lawyers for, and conveyance lawyers particularly, for the skill set that they should probably most cherish, which is our negotiation skills. Um, we're finding that we are making some significant headway with those people who are facing cash crunches and suddenly the other sides are negotiating with us and realizing that, hey, this is a collective problem. And while it's all well and good that, you know, you may have us by, uh, you know, our proverbial, uh, our, our per, our per, well, you may, you may be able to, um, you know, have us legally. Um, you understand that going to court is a less than preferable option. And as a result, if we are still here negotiating, let's negotiate in earnest and let's take price reductions or anything else. And what we're seeing in our office for the first time in really years is uh, a new realism that dealing with this reality requires sacrifice, perhaps from both sides, even though the contract is, is totally stacked in favor of one. So we are, we are seeing that new reality kind of permeate into our uh, everyday uh, office work. Um, and our negotiate, my negotiation, I spend about now about 20% of my day negotiating um, and figuring out solutions as opposed to just simply acting on the agreement of purchase and sale that's been sent to our office. Markedly different times, 
but nothing nothing totally disastrous like this isn't the sky is falling sort of thing it's just it's definitely changed times and those lawyers who are new to the field may not have encountered this before right yeah and i think you're definitely seeing that on the on the transaction side as well like a lot of realtors who were minted in the last two years or even you know even since sort of post 2017 blow off um really have, have only traded in a bull run and, and so yeah i mean it is very rude of the market to demand that we actually do our jobs now this time around. Right? <laughs> um, are you are you seeing a continued trend in um, the pre-construction side? Like I know um, Jeremiah, who's listening in here, and I'll, I'll try and get him on to speak. Jeremiah did send you a uh, request, mentioned that there were you know we're seeing some cancellations happening in that space, right? Are you seeing more and more of this this kind of um, lack of intention to close, uh, purchasing with the intention intention of assignment, or is that kind of fizzled out as demand starts to wane as a result of sort of the news, what's happening in, in the market. Yeah. So, so I'll tell you that, um, uh, look, there's people on this channel who can speak to new construction far more ably than myself, but I will tell you that I, that we went from about, I don't know, three to four new build reviews a day during the peak of February to what was, uh, by April, May, one or two a month, which was crazy. It just fell off a cliff. Um, and now we're back to maybe one or two a week. So there is a normalization. The market is kind of springing back to some degree, but I think it's certainly fair to say that new construction uh, and assignment deals in our office are way down. Interestingly, we're not seeing um, a huge decrease in overall volumes. Uh, we're still getting a tremendous amount of resale agreements but the new build space and the assignment space uh, the assignment space particularly has uh just totally fallen off a cliff in our office i'm not trying to speak largely i mean you'll take this for what it is but i'm speaking only as a mid-sized law office um i i that 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 area of my work has has really it's kind of atrophying at this point <laughs> those skill sets that's how long it's been since we've like it's done volume work in that in that space Fair enough. Yeah, I, I think that that would resonate sort of with the market. I think um, on the resale side, I, I, I'm imagining just based on, on what I've heard in the past, you're doing a lot of those uh, condominium certificate reviews as well. So um, condos seem to be like relatively strong, well, at least stronger than the remainder of the market on the volume side and on the on the price side, you know, not not seeing as much downside as, as some of the suburban detached stuff has seen. That, um, so, so that does make sense, you know, beyond just anecdote, if, if anybody was curious. About I, would, I, would mention one, I would mention one other thing, one other factor that we're starting to see uh, at our office, which is I am starting to see people come in with having taken significant haircuts. And that's something I haven't seen in about five years. Like people who um, used to list and then basically didn't get their price, well, they would usually just remove and then relist or ultimately just say, we're not selling now. Um, I don't know what the sentiment is out there, but I, I, if we had to guess just based on what's coming in the door, we are starting to see agreements that are coming in significantly below what client expectation was. I don't know about list because you know the agents play the game with like relisting for one day or whatever it is, but in every person that I'm speaking to or a good number of people who I'm speaking to are coming in massively dissatisfied with the price that they got, but still very glad to sell. So there is a new realism, I think, setting in amongst the public and amongst uh, the professionals that, uh, you know, this isn't this isn't your February market. And certainly, you know, interest rates are obviously propelling that as well. There's obviously a good reason for 
for believing that, but, but that sentiment is now extending to people willing to make the sacrifice that's necessary in order to see their properties move. I appreciate that uh, that insight, Mark, and uh, I, we're seeing it definitely on the sales side as well. And the communication that you're mentioning about um, price expectation being exceptionally unclear. I mean, it's very difficult to price discover in either direction, given the pricing um, model that we're using on mass in, in the, at least in the Greater Toronto area, which is sort of under list. And I, I had said in February that I felt that that created. Um, the ability for downward price discovery to be expedited because all that needed to happen was the bid needed to come down because the, the asking price was already below with the market, you know, the market value. And it looked like it did a pretty efficient job of doing that. So like all you really saw during this period was it wasn't a volume led decline. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't like we entered into a buyer's market um, or, or even a, a balanced market, but um the sale to list price ratio, so the bid basically just started uh, decreasing. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch over and and get to uh, to Brendan here um, quickly, just because um, Scott had mentioned sort of uh, that you know the there's a a bit of a correlation between the propensity for people to to file for bankruptcy and um, and and their employment situation. And I'm curious because again the employment numbers just came out and, and they weren't exceptionally bad. I mean, there was maybe the only shocking side was really that that there was uh, I think it was a hundred thousand um, people exited the workforce um, period. Like, and then I guess there was like forty three thousand job loss, which was you know nominal by comparison to the previous couple of months. So, Brendan, are we? Is there any major trends that we should be looking at on on your side of things that that indicate that you know anything is coming that that most people aren't aware of? It's a really interesting point on uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Daniel. Uh, it's a really interesting point on the bankruptcies uh, versus uh, employment uh, side. You know, that's that's something that you only uh, uh, learn by uh, working there on the ground. So uh, th thanks for uh, sharing that, Scott. Um, on the employment side, uh, I, I, I think um, we, we, we had a pretty weak uh, June job numbers. I, you know, I don't know what exactly to make of that. Like hours worked were actually up. There's all these there job drops in self-employment and retail trade. I'm not sure what exactly was going on in the, the ground, you know, to cause that. And we know the labor force survey is really volatile. The standard uh, error for month over month change is now 38,000 jobs. So um, uh, we know uh, to keep uh, month over month changes in the labor force survey um, with a grain of salt, uh, to take it with a grain of salt. Um, I think w one thing that's been uh, noticeable, some of the recent job numbers, um, uh, which overall like employment is high, um, uh, the share of the working age population um, uh, with the job is uh, near its all time high. Um, and, we're, and we're starting to see wages uh, start to rise. Um, this is both in the labor force survey data, um, which is more timely, but also in the payroll data where we have data through um, April, but over the past two uh, CEF uh, payroll reports, which are tracking the paychecks, um, sorry, uh, the payroll deduction forms sent by the universe of registered businesses in Canada. So payroll deductions um, related to uh, EI. So uh, um, a giant sample of uh of the Canadian labor market, the universe of in payroll, official payroll employees in the Canadian labor market. We're seeing wages there um, start to pick up uh, as well. Um, so uh, not not keeping up with uh, the pace of inflation, but um, 
but I think like thankfully into some degree, like uh, at least um, uh, showing a bit of life so that like the runaway pace of price of gas and food, for instance, um, uh, we're seeing like at least a little bit of movement um, uh, for paychecks keeping up though. Um, uh, not quite. And then kind of like, but you know, the labor market is such a coincident indicator. I don't think it's necessarily a lagging in indicator. Um, we like, uh, it's like a, a sustainable rise in unemployment is kind of, uh, this is something we were that uh, got a lot of discussion in 2019 is one of like the most reliable, if not the most reliable indicator that you are in a recession at that time. But it's just a coincident indicator, right? Can't really like, um, doesn't have uh, that much value in terms of forecasting where things are going in the six months ahead. Best we can do, I think, are sort of have our fingers on the pulse of like, what is the most up-to-date data saying? And that's where I'm going to, you know, uh, shamelessly plug in um, our Indeed uh, job posting data where we're covering, capturing a huge, uh, a, a large segment of the Canadian online job posting world. Um, StatCan data finds that uh, roughly three quarters to 80% of uh, job vacancies uh, are use uh, online job postings as a recruitment uh, method uh, to try and fill those um, roles. There we're seeing uh, job postings are still quite elevated, but they've cooled a bit uh, in, in recent weeks. Um, so uh, uh, they, they, uh, they hit a seasonally adjusted post-pandemic high of 73, 74% in early May. And now they've slid a bit. Uh, they're, they're, they're at uh, 66, up 66% uh, um, as of July 8th, so uh, last Friday. Um, so so a, a little bit of a cooling still. like, uh, And so, you know, it's like uh, kind of like levels still quite high, but 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 down from uh, fr from those uh, pr previous peaks. And uh, and I think that pattern is pretty like evident across nearly almost all large sectors. Um, uh, looking looking just at the uh, major segments uh, of, of the labor market, things over the past two months or so, so are either flat, you know, in like nursing, uh, certain areas of um, uh, healthcare, food, food service, customer service, um, pretty flat, and they're elevated across the board. And then they're, they, they've softened in, uh, in areas like construction, manufacturing. Uh, tech has also uh, softened a bit, still really high, though. So I think um, overall, uh, we're, we're in this question of like, it, 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 things like look like they're easing. Um, but, you know, like this data isn't really it can't really speak to, you know, the question of recession versus, quote unquote, soft landing landing. Both job postings as well as I'd say layoffs have been um, in the case of job postings quite high and layoffs quite low. Uh, the, in the labor force survey, for instance, we can track the share of um, people who are newly out of work. That's it, like duration of jobless equals one. And those rates over, over the past few months have been quite low. So like there is a big, like um, there is room for like normalization. Um, uh, there's like a lot of room for that without tipping in to recession. Now that does, that's not like, that doesn't provide any kind of um, uh, prediction, but more so that there's like, um, that a rise in layoffs or a fall in job postings wouldn't necessarily be uh, put us in recessionary uh, territory because we are in like, we've been in such a strong um, labor market. Uh, so, I mean, uh, that, that, that just kind of, in some ways, you know, leaves more questions than answers. But I'd say like, um, 
you know, as, as a coincident indicator, I, I think like the labor market is, is still uh, in, in solid shape. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how uh, the next few months go. Thanks, Brendan. Yeah, I, I guess one of the big curiosities that I have is, you know, like with inflation being such a big topic um, and dealing with, with a recession that's sort of wedged between what we saw maybe at the, in the, the early 80s versus the early 90s. Um, from from a policy control perspective, and, and trying to to you know monetary policy, trying to properly land this ship, um, I'm wondering if there's anything evident on the wage side that would indicate that. Because I'm just wondering where we start to see. Like I'm of the the perspective that asset prices, real estate values are not going to be going up until. Um, until interest rates start coming down, and and I don't think that interest rates are going to start coming down until um, inflation starts coming down. And I'm wondering if in, on the wage side, um, and Peter, I know you had your hand up, so I, I want to get to you after that, um, after this. But I, if on the wage side we're seeing anything happen where um, there's an allusion to either inflation being more evident and and higher wages being demanded or higher wages being paid to to sort of offset that cost of living. Um, or if and, and if you think that it would be a fair predictor to say if wages if we start to see wages come down maybe rather than than looking at inflation understanding that we're running such a tight labor market that if wage might actually be the predictor that that things are turning around um, rather than than employment itself and and Scott I'll allow you to, to chime in on that or I'll ask you sorry not allow you you have permission to speak at all times so I'll ask you to, to chime in on uh, on that one as well so I'm just have a curiosity if if it's sort of the cost of living expenses that were or acceleration that we're that we're hearing about on a you know accelerating on a on a daily basis for Canadians if that's what's pushing people into your office with with bank like approaching bankruptcy um, or or if it's um, if it's something else yeah well in in the last three months inflation has been on every new client's lips um, in talking to people who contact us for the first time and that's I mean, obviously, none of us have been talking about inflation for a long time because there hasn't been any inflation. But um, it, when you hear people who are, again, back to living paycheck to paycheck, which I think a great number of Canadians are, um, and Canadians are also uh, extremely adept at um, you know kicking things down the road and being resourceful financially, um, you know, we're able to avoid catastrophe for a very long time. And our estimate from our research is that from the time people decide that they have a an irreversible debt problem uh, until they call us is somewhere between 12 and 24 months. So given that, uh, we might not even, even, even though we're going to be very busy this fall because of seasonality issues and insolvency, which I can touch on later, but um, some, of the, some of the people that we're going to see, aren't, we're not going to see them for a year because they can still make things go despite all of these factors. Um, now, it'll, I think that 24 will shrink to 12 with inflationary pressures. Um, you know, it'll squeeze people more. It'll, it'll, it'll speed them into our office. Um, but I think, I think you're going to see those factors start to come into play. Like, we haven't spoken to – I haven't spoken to anybody who owns a house for two years and in the last – two months or three months, I've spoken to a great number of them. Um, not all of them are filing, but the fact that homeowners are calling us is to us is a huge deal. That's a big indicator. Um, you know, and I've, I've seen people starting to make decisions on their homes or their secondary properties, investment properties, 
recently. And like I said, you know, to even hear from a homeowner, uh, certainly in the GTA in the last two years was unheard of in our industry. So that's starting to happen. I don't know if I answered your question there or not. Yeah, I just, yeah. I just I mean, talked a bunch. Of it. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's definitely along the lines of sort of the guidance that I was looking for. I know most of this is anecdotal, so it, it's tough to to answer most of the questions that I'm asking succinctly. Um, I guess one of the, the, the only other piece of the puzzle that I have is when you talk to a homeowner like that, like one of the themes that we've had in a lot of these spaces in the past little bit, especially on the mortgage side, is this contraction of, of capital, almost you would call it rescue capital, right? Like mm-hmm. the money where, you know, if somebody is in a tough financial position and but house prices are going up, um, you know, they can they can tap into that equity and maybe they can only tap a lock up to 65%, but there's always a private lender who's willing to do up to 80 or whatever it is, right? Um, we've seen that drying up, right? Have people who are approaching that position that you're talking about, and maybe just coming in for an exploratory consultation, right? Have they already kind of been down that road and talked to a private lender or whatever it is? Like, I guess, are, are you are you and a lot of these private, private lenders sharing business, you know, or... Yeah, well, so most of them have spoken to at least somebody, if not a couple of people. Um, people tend to be pretty close with their agents, you know, even long after they've bought, um, you know, especially in smaller communities. And they've gotten some, you know, some guidance from from people that they know who are in the business, um, probably talk to their mortgage brokers or, or at least friends or family who are in the financial industry is more common. Um, and then homeowners are typically brought to us, uh, by somebody or at least suggested by somebody, whereas renters, you know, kind of just go, okay, I can't keep doing this because of the exact reason that you said, which is, you know, they will typically explore, as you called it, I love this rescue capital. I'm going to keep, keep that one in mind. It's probably something everybody on here knows except me, but I've, it's the first time I've heard it. So rescue capital, that's great stuff. But, but now, you know, one of the, to answer one of the questions that came up, before this space started, uh, scenarios I'm seeing now that are, you know, because of rising rates. I mean, I've had somebody say they're selling their investment home simply because the owners didn't like the overall state of the market. Now the rates are going up, like they're just getting jittery. And that was enough, right? They're, they're like, nope, I don't want this. Uh, we're over leveraged enough as it is. Uh, I wasn't comfortable a year ago, even when things were rocking and rolling. And now I'm really not. So I think some of these things are just you know, people recognizing that over time, they couldn't quite do what they were doing. But when things are going great, okay, it's sustainable. But then I think a lot of people are just going to go, you know what, I don't know about this. Um, You know, some people's job situations are not very strong. And so it might look from the outside, like, well, why would you give up your house and your investment property? Well, you know, you don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. When someone calls us, we know everything, or at least everything they tell us, which is usually at that point is everything. Um, cause there's not, like, there's not much point holding any information back once you're calling me. Um, and I also know how to get information out of people because if you do this long enough, but if somebody's job situation is shaky and, and all this other stuff's going on, that's just enough for them to call us too. Um, so the rescue capital things, I think will start to erode a little bit as people look at their own situation and, you know, certainly listen to the pervasive media coverage of this stuff. And, and it's all pretty negative right now, even though I personally don't think it is all negative. But, you know, you, you'd, you'd be forgiven for thinking so after watching CP24 all day, I guess. 
Yeah, it is, it is pretty remarkable how quickly the uh, the news media flipped from um, from bullish to bearish. Like, I mean, it was pretty. <laughs> it was always a pretty solid sentiment check on the market prior, and now it's yeah. just wild. They, they, I've always been the bearish realtor, so you know, I, I when this happens, I get a lot of phone calls, which I like. Um, Peter, did you want to jump in here? I know you had your hand up there. I think when Mark was speaking um, about uh, you know kind of what's happening on the transaction side, sort of demanding that us as professionals are almost getting more into a negotiation role than, than we have been in the past. Um, did you have any, any insight you wanted to, to inject there? Yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, all that trouble that he was, that Mark was talking about earlier, I think it's, it's definitely subdued just because, you know, if you're not aware that you have to sell and then buy in this market, then you're gonna, you know, you're not paying attention to what's going on. Uh, so I think that's probably slowed down all the, uh, you know, those, dis those despair sales of people just unloading because they had to close. Uh, but I had a question on the jobs report too. I think it was from Brendan. Um, did we, have we been seeing a disproportionately higher share of public sector jobs being created? Yes. Uh, just in terms of net, if you, just looking at net growth. Um, since, uh, since the pre pandemic, uh, so Feb 2020, so, uh, definitely, um, uh, public administration, strong growth, that's government, but also education, uh, healthcare pretty strong as well. So th those are quite strong. And then in the private sector, like, I think like, uh, painting the private sector with one brush uh, it is not the best way to describe the labor market for uh, because there are some areas of the private sector that are also that are booming the, the strongest actual industry category uh, uh, in just uh, net job growth um, uh, since uh, February 2020 is professional scientific and technical services up 17 percent that outpaces any other category finance, real estate, also quite strong. Um, the flip side is uh, self-employment is really weak in Canada right now. Um, we, like just it fell, it, it was sort of like stable at the start of the pandemic. I think a lot of people just um, uh, were still nominally self-employed, but without any hours uh, worked. And it's just been, it's just, it's it, it slid and, and it's still like really low. And then we have like still ongoing weakness in um, a sort of leisure hospitality world. Um, uh, accommodation and food service um, quite weak. So like, uh, so the public sector in the LFS data, especially, um, yeah, uh, it ha has grown a bunch, not just government, also healthcare and education. Um, and, uh, and then uh, in the private sector, like a real mixed bag, you've got some high flying areas, tech, white, white collar, higher paying, uh, uh, white, white collar fields doing quite well. A bunch of areas like sort of uh, in between. Construction's pretty strong, uh, um, like uh, not like the high flying areas, but solid. I think retail um, uh, had a rough uh, June, but also um, pretty solid. So, and and then like these pot, like areas where uh, just the labor market has totally um, shifted away from, um, like uh, like your food service area um, and, uh, and 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 self employment really. Uh, what one that's um, been surprisingly weak, and I, to be honest, uh, it's it's tough to get a, much of a read on that uh, without uh, you know like uh, uh, there's there's limited data windows into what what's going on there. So um, yeah, public sector strong, um, and then and the rest I'd say like not not bad. Um, like lo lo looking like overall at the private sector, it's been a 
uh, like a decent recovery, especially like um, uh, outside of the self-employment world. But um, but 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 d d definitely mixed. Nice. Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. Sorry, guys. I was dealing with a couple of connection issues there, so I, I might uh, might have missed some some notes. Um, I want to uh, I want to jump a little bit to. I mean, I always talk about whether or not there's any evidence of, of systemic risk in in the Canadian market, um, especially talking about. And I, I honestly don't have any evidence to believe that there is, but I, I would argue that if if there was, it would probably exist within that kind of scope where people are buying um, assignment contracts with the intention of flipping them if that existed at a large scale and you know if, if I would say if probably 25 percent of the volume of purchases made within you know at, at sort of record high prices against accelerating construction costs accel accelerating capital costs um, accelerating land costs um, and and uh, a recessionary Canada um, and a changing job market uh, if that that kind of happened, you know, and there was a, a lot of people not willing to close on, on some of these towers that are already in the sky, um, and then that those those values are now you know twenty five or thirty percent less than, or even I mean even if they don't go up, there there's a gap right of twenty percent um, between today's value and and some of the the pre sale values. Um, I'm wondering, I guess, um, Jeremiah, you, you presented some data, uh, so I want to chat a little bit about, about that and, and also Mark's perspective, uh, just to return to that one. Um, but you mentioned that there was a, a handful of cancellations happening in the construction space and a lower appetite in general um, on the development side, um, which is interesting, you know, how quickly responsive we're seeing the supply chain uh, to these changes in prices, but also changes in, in the borrowing structure. Um, any any uh, light you can shed, sort of uh, you know, qualitatively on, on what's going on there in in the, the the development space within the Canadian real estate market? Um, well, basically, what we're just seeing is uh, you know, sense of. Uh, <clears throat> Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you now. It was, it was cutting in and out, but I can hear you now. Yeah, someone called me. Um, Good problem to have. <laughs> but what, yeah, one of the biggest thing is like, you know, these developers are taking on, say for an average 300 unit building, uh, you know, $100 million construction loan. And so last year they were writing their construction loans at 4%. This year it's at 5.75. And after yesterday's announcement, um, you'll likely see that go into the sixes. So you know, on an average loan, that's an extra 1.75 million a year, you know, average construction cycle for a project like that is, you know, somewhere around 35 to 40 months. So, you know, you're looking at uh, an extra almost five to $7 million, depending on when they start in cost. So uh, a lot of the groups were just telling me, listen, we, you know, our, our burn right now is so low um, holding the land versus when we have to actually construct it, that market risk just isn't worth it right now. And so many have taken the approach to wait and see. And, you know, I'll give you a real time example of uh, a low rise builder who quite literally just locked up his sales centers and just said, you know, we don't want to take price decreases. So we're just going to close up for the summer and potentially shelve this until 2023 and understand when interest rates kind of settle off and there's less risk in the market. So it's it, most of those groups that were shelving and shelving uh, and canceling projects, they were basically doing a mark to market on their pro forma and 
making sense of, well, you know, we're not going to do go out and launch sales. Um, and we're going to wait to, uh, we're going to wait to actually build it. And so uh, a lot of them were actually purpose built rental ground up apartment stuff as well. Um, and so uh, basically just on the qualitative side, we're just seeing people wait because there's so much fear and their cost of increase. Thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate that. Um, Mark, are you kind of, kind of seeing the same, um, like, and I guess on the demand side as well, you know, you mentioned obviously the, the, the um, number of people approaching you with that without the intention of, of assigning. So maybe, maybe these, these two, the supply and demand side are kind of both moving in unison and we might actually see a bit of a softer landing on this than I anticipated. Yeah, it's, it's possible. Look, I, I, I swim with the small fish. That's what I do, right? I mean, every single day is just basic resellers and uh, small, small people, but these are the people who really are using their HELOCs uh, in order to fund their uh, deposits. Um, many of them go into things like new builds. Many of them go into things like just basic real estate purchases without any real tangible plan as to how it is they're going to pay for it or without any thought as to what interest rates are. Uh, the problem is that a lot of the people who locked into new build construction purchases uh, did so uh, without any understanding of uh, the fact that you know their, their payments could be double what they actually turned out to be. Those people are uh, admitting to me very bluntly, and I'm getting quite a few calls on this, that they are incredibly intimidated by closings coming up in the next year. Those people who haven't more than a year out or haven't really turned their attention to it, it's not tangible for them, I don't think. But those people who are closing in the next couple of months, um, it is a real factor. What I, what I would point out to you, one, one thing that I think is going a bit unnoticed at the present time is that there was a large, especially in the GTA, there was a large building strike um that took place amongst trades and what that did was that had the effect of pushing back many 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 project closings most actually at the very time when interest rates started going up this has the unfortunate effect of a disallowing people to lock into the lower rates that would have happened had the projects not been delayed uh, but also it has the um uh somewhat weird effect of actually having a reduced number of closings that have taken place at the very time when interest rates have started to spike. Uh, that, uh, those trades are now back at work. The projects are now completing. And so we can expect to see um, the volumes that we did not see close start um, hitting the closing schedules. And at that point, the uh, heightened interest rates become a real factor for most. And then we're going to start seeing how that plays out, given that so many people had intended to actually pay for these things through HELOCs, uh, certainly for their down payments, uh, and, you know, are now in a very, very different environment. So I am starting to see in my office a real reticence and fear of closings that are coming up as opposed to, uh, you know, what was previously the case, which was joy, because, you know, when these things were closing up, it was assignment time where we could sell and look how much money we made. Now it's, oh, God, how are we going to afford this? And I don't think we can sell it. Um, and I think that will increase with time because more and more projects are now scheduled to complete, given that the trades are back at work. Um, that's I, I hope I did answer your question, but but that's that's kind of what I'm seeing presently. 
Thanks a lot, Mark. Um, I want to get to, I just noticed that we have um, Deer Point Macro here. I want to get to two questions from the audience that have DM me. Thank you. Um, if you do want to ask a question as a speaker, please just DM me your question because we have a busy one today. Um, and I want to be mindful that we only have Scott and Mark and potentially Brendan, I think, until 4 p.m. Um, and, and I probably try and wrap it up relatively early here as well, just because the weather's beautiful again here in the greater Toronto area. And, uh, and it is, we are on summer hours here for this Twitter space. For those of you who are wondering why it's still at 3 p.m. It will be that way until likely September. Um, so, Zach, do you want to go ahead? Uh, I think you were going to share some insight of what's going on in the construction space. And then also you had a question for Scott. Um, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, perfect. Thanks. Um, I basically just wanted to point out, like, I've always, always, I'm a masonry contractor. Uh, impossible to get guys. Always desperate. Take anyone I can get. And, uh, you know, right now I'm just really not interested in growing payroll, but um, I'm getting calls for like the first time in a long time of people looking for work. A lot of these guys are the kind of two-man shows. They, like, obviously, I'm guessing, doing a lot of homeowner work. And I think those, those HELOC homeowners are done. They're, they're not doing any more, uh, no more brick jobs. Um, and my question was uh, for Scott is if he's seeing people with um, SIBA obligations, and I think that would be uh, a leading indicator of, of struggling businesses that are just going to start to die. And uh, I'll get off here and let you guys talk about it. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Thanks, Zach. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Scott. Yeah, yes, I am seeing that and have been for a while. That's not a new trend. Um, I don't imagine that the new financial circumstances are going to reduce it any, and we'll probably just do the opposite. But Throughout COVID, um, we have been in talks with people who, you know, received CERB, received CRB, received CIVA, you know, you know, name your government uh, emergency benefit, basically. But the self-employeds, um, they're certainly coming to see us more in the last six months, uh, maybe eight months, because if you think about it, you know, they were, a lot of them were effectively shut down or at least massively reduced because of COVID their business and the impact on their businesses um, you know so they limped through got the got the benefits and you know when you're it's it's like these installment loans when you're desperate you just take what you can get you know people people blaming people for making bad moves like that's not the mindset you know when, and especially if you're a you know a stressed out harassed not sleeping business owner you know you've just seen your revenues drop 50 percent or more because of a, a pandemic that had nothing to do with you um, and yes, yeah, so we're starting to see them. It's with the business people as opposed to serve. It's more exploratory calls because they kind of think they owe and they're not sure. Um, so we walk them through it. Um, but the thing about it is, they tend to owe a lot more than that. So it's really just the it really just pushes them in. It pushes them over the edge, if anything, um, because if you're already you know you haven't paid your HST for a year because you're paying your employees or or your you know, so your intentions are good. You're just not paying the government, and that that happens whether there's pandemics or not. And anybody who's in a tight business situation can do that. And you know, not paying your source deduction, etc. So, so a lot of them have business loans. They owe source. They owe HST, and now they owe this. So, you know, taken all together, they sit down with their accounts, and their accountants say, "You got to talk to somebody." Um, and so, yes, we're seeing that and have been throughout this. But of course, now that you know, it's coming time for, well, December, they're due. Um, you know, people are starting to really think about that and look at their overall situation and wonder whether the business is viable or not. 
Thanks, God. I appreciate the insight there. Um, I believe we have, um, is it, uh, Ma, uh, sorry, Harko. Uh, um, did you have a, a question? I think we had a couple of questions for, for panelists. Um, did you want to go ahead? Yeah, sure. Hey, thanks, Daniel, for having me on. I really My appreciate pleasure. it. Uh, I, I was just, uh, I wanted to speak very, very quickly on the whole uh, wage increase um, that's taking place, especially within the construction sector. Now, I'm a uh, construction site uh, superintendent, but I see a lot of, um, I, I, personally, I get a lot of requests for uh, for for jobs or for uh, interviews. I know I, I'm usually on uh, LinkedIn quite a bit, but I usually get like five to six requests a week. Um, these are typically for either mid-rise or high-rise construction projects anywhere within the GTA. But um, anyway, um, yeah, I just wanted to echo what uh, Zach was saying earlier about uh, having uh, difficulty finding guys, and especially in uh, in my space, I'm in the, the civil space, but even on the residential side, there's a lot of, uh, not turnover per se, but there's a lot of retirees that are, or people who are uh, going to retire in the next five to eight years, and yeah, it's almost nearly impossible to find guys that can stay or guys that can uh uh, uh, you know, uh, do the work. But anyway, which is also um, contributing to the uh, uh, the wage increases that uh, they're negotiating. Anyway, um, quick question for um, Scott or Brendan or whoever wants to answer it. Um, have you guys seen uh, any um, uh, anything anything with respect to uh, either not not so much current homeowners, but I would say either younger people who are uh, uh, looking to, uh, you know, uh, to get out of debt or, or uh, looking to uh, restructure their debt who have recently acquired uh, a newer job in, say, the last two years. I ask that because my difficulty right now is trying to find guys who are able to stick around. Like, a lot of the times I get guys who will stick around for, like, a few months or whatever, and then they'll hop on to the next project or the next company, and they have, uh, you know, like um, a better uh, a better wage opportunity that they're um, that they're uh, they're given or that they're offered. I can take a shot at that one. Um, we're seeing a lot of people who are exiting their industries, and this is a direct result of COVID. So. Um, just grossly disproportional number of people in serving jobs, acting entertainment jobs, any jobs that, you know, where you touch people like massage therapists or yoga instructors, that kind of thing. And what they're craving is stability. Um, their jobs were not super stable, possibly in the first place, um, in terms of steady income. But COVID kind of completely disillusioned them uh, on, on the industries that they're in. And so they're just making career changes, basically. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I, to me, that's significant. Um, I saw a couple more examples of it today. One of them, going back to, I think it was Brendan's comment on, about nurses. Um, nurses are quitting nursing. Um, like, it's a hard job. It's probably the most underpaid job for what they do that I can think of. And either they're fed up and they can't do it anymore. They're burned out. Um, so there's probably six to ten uh, work profiles where we've seen just a huge number of people because of COVID, and now they're starting to look for something, even if it's less money, 
uh, as long as it's stable, that's what they want because they just can't do the instability anymore. And COVID highlighted highlighted that, and uh, you know, exaggerated it to the point where they're just they're just done. I don't know if that answers the question, but I think it was along the lines of you're looking, you know, people changing industries and wanting wanting a you're you're looking for people who want steady work, and that's exactly the kind of people I'm describing. Although they may not be used to more physical work. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've uh, I've had uh, actually my sister. She's a She's a full-time nurse. She lives in Toronto, but she works out of uh, out of uh, Rochester, New York. Actually, she goes back and forth every few days. Yeah, so I, I, I know it's quite, it's quite the it's quite, it's quite the uh, and she she saw the writing on the wall like maybe seven eight years ago, right? So now she's uh, she so she made her decision back then, and yeah, so she's getting paid in U.S. dollars, and then yeah, taking that money up here. So yeah. Interesting. Thanks. Um, Brendan, did you did you have anything to inject there? Um, and I'm actually generally curious as well if there's any data on sort of a, the length because it is a great point that's that's being alluded to here. If, there, if there's been a shortening of the length of tenure that people are taking jobs, because I feel like just like everyone in my generation, it's like uh, it's almost like you know people climb that housing ladder, and I think it might just be like a sign of. of you know, being in a, in a perpetual bull run for 25 years that where, but people, it just seems like people are like constantly climbing that next ladder. It's not like you, you promote through switching jobs, not through actually climbing the ladder within the existing company. Is there, is there evidence that there's been a reduction in the amount of time people are spending at jobs? Uh, you know, I, I think I'm not so sure. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, we've got very little data on like job switching and labor turnover in Canada. Um, the labor force, uh, the LFS puts out like one job switching metric for the whole economy. And that's just kind of like, is not gonna capture the overall nuance of kind of different areas of the economy and the propensity of different age groups, for instance, to change jobs. Overall though, like um, Canada hasn't seen the same sort of like quote unquote great resignation um, that the US uh, has where you saw people really like jumping job to job and not just like across industries, but even just among employers um, in the same industry. So I'm not sure like, uh, um, I, 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 I'm not sure about like uh, any sort of like rapid rate of like job switching these days, though I, I, um, I do, I, I think a lot of what Scott um, just mentioned on kind of like the shift away from contact heavy service sectors um, has been pretty noticeable. With the exception of retail, I think um, uh, th those areas of the economy, you just see it that um, that employment is um, pretty weak in these kind of uh, personal care services and uh, accommodation and food service areas of the economy, even though, um, especially when it comes to food services, there are tons of um, jo job openings there. Um, I actually have a question uh, for kind of uh, people uh, on the construction labor side of things. Um, uh, and this kind of uh, gets back to what the recent um, uh, commenter commentator was bringing up just on wages. So I, I, I see like um, uh, the latest wage data. I'm looking just as Canada wide construction uh, data has um, wage growth in sort of like the five, four to five percent year over year range, maybe, you know, bouncing around it's volatile, but like not not especially strong. But I've kind of like um, explored some there's stack has some data on um, there's this uh, a series called like the um, uh, union construction wage index um, uh, and, and sort of like tracking like the uh, bargained uh, set wages um, uh, by uh, construction unions in Canada. The data is pretty detailed by um, uh, like a metro area and um, and specific trade. And like I, I've noticed in those that like the 
um, the wage, the, the, the pace of like those way the, of that wage index uh, is rising is pretty slow. Um, and that could go help explain potentially, you know, why um, these construction, like the headline construction wage um, growth rates aren't growing um, like especially fast, even though um, it's been a, a seems like a pretty tight market. Um, for some time. And maybe there's like some contrast going on between the um, unionized and non-unionized side of things um, where uh, the sort of relatively low um, pace of increase in the uh, bargained wages for different um, trades might be like sort of like a weighing factor on the aggregate uh, construction uh, level of wage growth. Whereas like um, sort of maybe underneath the hood, there actually are the, the tight labor market is showing up in uh, certain pockets. Curious if anyone has any thoughts on that? I, we actually, we track the construction market wages as close as we can because we internally, uh, I'm at Collier's uh, and we have a, a large construction CM team like they built the Olympic Village. And um, I, I haven't talked to them lately, but it, about a month ago, we were reviewing kind of some of the, the issues surrounding Toronto trades and some of the renegotiating of contracts there. And... Uh, the last things we were tracking is a lot of the, the electricians, a lot of the main skilled trades, they had roughly negotiated around a, uh, a nine to 11% raise um, this year. And this, this has happened every two years or so, I think as it's, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, someone might know, but the, the contract gets renegotiated and it causes kind of a, a jump in construction pricing. And that's really, cause a lot of these risks we've seen in the land side of things and developers actually building housing. But uh, the comment I found most interesting from uh, some of the CMs, some of the guys dealing with construction trades on a daily basis is that um, because a, a lot of these skilled trades are, are kind of more of the old school, I guess, mentality of how they actually do it, like especially masonry work, uh, they're having a huge amount of problems trying to get the next generation of skilled trades come in and and they're for they're forecasting uh, even more pushing in uh, in kind of the salary and wages. I forget exactly what they forecasted, but there's there's so much need for some of these skilled trades, and there's so little um, demand coming up. I, I actually tweeted the quote on this, so I'll have to find it, but that they're they're actually sounding the alarm bells and they're saying that not only is this bad but in the next five years there's going to be a, a huge amount of construction workers who are retiring and i think it was something like 25 30 percent retiring and there's only like a five percent growth to, to make up for that so i you know i can't comment to all the data you're talking about but what we've seen mostly is around the 10% increase in the GTA area. And just my comment overall, and someone might know more in depth about this, but what happens in five years when you have a third of the workforce who's retiring and you only have 5% who are being hired back in? Yeah, I, I, can, uh, I, 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 can, I can speak to that uh, very briefly again. Um, so yeah, likewise, uh, in my industry on the, on the civil side, so in, uh, Obviously, you have the residential sector, you have the civil sector, you have uh, roads, you have uh, uh, highways, uh, highway division. Um, it's being felt pretty much all over. And I think 
I yes, I know that uh, uh, especially the provincial government they're dead set on you know uh, trying to get as many uh, skilled trades as possible to be hired, but they're also spending billions on infrastructure, right? Now, what good is those billions that's going to be spent if you don't have the workforce to build that infrastructure? So obviously, it's going to be. I think it's going to be a uh, a tandem effort between the the province and the feds uh, to see what new immigration come in uh, can come in with uh, uh, trying to uh, build up those skilled trades uh, with respect to uh, the new population coming in. Right until that actually happens. Yeah, we're, we're probably going to be stuck in a rut for who knows the next two, three, five, maybe a decade or more as that workforce uh, uh, sets uh, sets to retire. And if you don't have the 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 workforce, to, excuse me, the, the the next generation to replace them, yeah, there's obviously going to be an increase uh, with respect to costs for developers and for uh, um, uh, for government spending infrastructure money. It is a, a big forward-looking challenge, right? And and it's been addressed in in a, on Ontario in the Ontario Affordable Housing uh, Task Force report, which you know, a lot of the actions I've seen in there, I would I would like to see happen. Um, but I think it's points 45, uh, 46, and forty seven. If you just Google uh, Ontario Affordable Housing Task Force report. Um, talks about basically like how we have this massive shortfall and uh, they want to increase, I think, the number they have. Obviously, they don't the province doesn't dictate um, federal immigration policy, but um, sort of pushing them to to immigrate between nine to 20,000 um, skilled trade immigrants. Uh, I, I don't think they provide a timeline on it, but that that's sort of like the, the guideline. Um, so, I mean, I, I would agree. I think this is a, a big, big difficulty. And, and I think over the. You know, as we start to see a mismatch in, in the supply and demand of labor, um, I'm uh, by no means am I a labor econ- uh, or expert in labor economics, but it's just sort of one of those points that seems to to be a looming looming threat um, in one way or another. A um, couple of other individuals jumped on here. Um, I just want to give them a chance to speak, and uh, I know Scott's got to sign off, um, and I, I don't know if Mark or, or Brendan do, but if anybody wants to jump in before we kind of pivot to a little bit more macro, because I feel like we've been kind of just talking about about indicators from each of your sectors, which has been really cool. Um, but maybe just chat a little bit on the, on the macro side of things. Um, so we have uh, Deerpoint here and, and Steve who just jumped on. So if, if either of you guys want to jump in and just give us a 30,000 feet of what you're seeing in the market, um, I'd love to hear that. Uh, maybe we'll start with Deerpoint. Yeah, so um, it, I, I guess the, the big conversation was around the 100 basis points yesterday. Um, it seems that... Uh, that has been all kind of the buzz, and and people think that the BOC is going to continue, and um, and uh, you know I, I think that a lot of people when they discuss interest rates, they probably don't work an interest rate desk, um, but w- once you start to actually work an interest rate desk, you you start to see some some very big developments. Um, for example, like one thing that we look at is the one year one year forward rate. Um, that's down 150 basis points today. Um, it's pricing in uh, cuts from the Bank of Canada. Um, there's something called, called the twos, fives, tens butterfly. Um, again, it's not really important how it's constructed, but just the gist of it is um, that uh, this is negative uh, for the Canadian bonds, um, which uh, means that there's some rate cut policy being priced in uh, to 
to to kind of the it's actually the capture of the curve it's not really trading the the direction anyways but um then you also have if you start to look at um, some other things that i looked at today both uh, canada and the us are, are seeing positive real rates and people are going to be like what the hell is this guy talking about well if you work interest rates real rates are going to be like a government bond um in the differential between a government bond of a 10-year minus the break-even of a similar 10-year. So if you look at the 10-year 10-year expectations or the 10-year break-evens against the 10-year treasury, um, for Canada, it's positive 170 basis points. For the U.S., it's positive 70 basis points. Um, even if you pull that 10-year forward, the market expectations of higher levels of inflation are starting to deteriorate. Um, so like w when I look around, I, I think people are, are way too optimistic. Canada actually has a massive shortage of dollars um, from the U.S. side. Um, this is going to, again, put downward pressure on the Federal Reserve to back off policy. Um, you know, Canadian banks are going to end up starting to be, you know, pinched um, because of, of, you know, U.S. dollar money market funds, etc. Um, and now Canada issuing a three-year U.S. dollar-denominated bond is going to put further deterioration if the the dollar reserves aren't there to be matched. Um, so there's a lot of things that I think if you look around, I, I, I think that this idea that the BOC is going to be continual hawk or continually hawkish um, is is way overblown. I'm also the only person who I know of who built a credit impulse model for Canada. Um, people said that there was all of this extravagant bank lending. If you look at credit impulse data, there was an extravagant bank lending throughout the pandemic or, or even, you know, uh, months prior, uh, nothing that had deviated broadly from, from previous highs. So um, that's kind of my 30,000 uh, foot view. I think inflation's coming down. I think that um, the Bank of Canada will cut. I think that the Federal Reserve will cut. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at my terminal right now. Um, and again, what now it's since we've talked the, uh, the four, uh, one year, one year forward has fallen again, uh, another 150 basis points. And so now it's at uh, negative 300 basis points right now. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, Steve, I think you had your hand up and then we'll get to Peter. Um, obviously, to your point, it's always good to, uh, to draw out a couple of questions. So go ahead, Steve. To your point, that's hard to talk. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that's, I think that's really like brilliant, just what you said there. But um, yeah, just kind of always look at it from the housing market perspective. But um, you know, I think we're starting to see. It. I think one of the things that I don't know if anyone flagged it on this, but you know, one of the things I was looking at the other day, writing up my report, was just the um, the implications from the mortgage side, which is like how many people have been skirting you know, the higher fixed rate mortgages and have been going variable and being stressed tested at those lower variable rates, um, which is, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden you raise a hundred basis points, huge move. You're now getting stress tested at like a minimum 6%, whether you go fixed or variable. So I think that's a huge story moving forward. I also think if the markets are right, which again, to dear points, point i don't think they are i've been wrong so far this year on rates so happy to eat some humble pie there but um i think that uh if they get the 350 basis points of rate hikes in this year which is what the market is still predicting that's typically what triggers those uh fixed payment variable mortgages 
So it's typically, I mean, I think that's another story that nobody's really talking about. If the Bank of Canada truly gets in, there's 350, 375, 400 basis points. And by sometime next year, then how many rates are they going to trigger? And I just think like the housing market is already as slow, as so slow. And, and I just think like, you know, Scott's in this year. I mean, he's probably seeing, uh, you know, I think a lot of people coming under the, the stresses of these interest rates. Uh, I still think it's extremely early, but um, that's kind of things that I'm watching. It's just the the housing slowdown and the impact moving forward uh, on the variable side. Thanks, David. I appreciate the insight there. I I ran a couple of scenarios on what it would look like to hit a trigger rate, and I think that like you would be right in assuming that I think if we get another hundred bips, uh, you'll start seeing triggers hit on a lot of the variables that were signing up at sort of like prime minus sixty five last year at record lows. Um, but and that would be sort of like if I guess you'd be you'd be starting your payment at you know like one point five percent going to you know you're probably in the threes now if you if you hit that six percent mark that's sort of where your interest there's not enough payment left to service your interest and and then you're gonna get i think rolled over to the fixed side i'm not exactly sure how it works but um peter you want to jump in here yeah uh yeah. wanted to make note of what you said the trigger rates that's that's something huge and i don't think it's, it's 100 or 150 basis points like i'm aware of people now who you know another 50 basis point hike and by by the boc and their trigger rate you know quote unquote gets triggered <laughs> and, and and they're above that threshold right so some of them are just only like 50 basis points away uh i had a little anecdotal thing of a client tell me like because he's on this static payment um you know static uh payment on the variable and you know the, his bank called him up to let him know it's like look you got from last year he's at a 30-year amortization but you know from all the rate hikes now the amortization is actually at 59 years now since doubled uh, in terms of where it is, uh, and he's about 40 basis points away based, uh, from hitting that triggering rate. Um, the other thing is, uh, I wanted to agree, I, I agree mostly with what Deerpoint had to say, like, they, the BOC shocked everyone at, uh, at 100 basis points, and what did the bond market really do? Pretty much flat, right? Like, not, like, a quick spike right after, but then, for the most part, uh, not that much movement. Yeah, and I think that spike was actually like as soon as we saw the report from um, it was U.S. inflation, right? Like it was already pre yeah. I mean, the ball. I don't. I think the the difficulty here is like getting an understanding for exactly where the where the Bank of Canada lies. Like if you're looking at the macro, and and maybe Deer can can jump in and, and clarify. But are we sort of trying to hedge against? Like, are they trying to front run the next Fed decision and and almost trying to hedge against? you know, getting into that spiral of importing more inflation now, like what's, what's sort of happening between the, the Fed side and the Bank of Canada side, like, or, because I, I think, you know, the, the consensus here before this all started was that the Fed was going to be the one driving the ship and that, you know, and that we basically had to follow suit. And now it's sort of like um, a, a bit of a dance to try and see, you know, who's got to back off first. Like, is that sort of what you're kind of what you're predicting? Well, no, I, I think the Fed is going to back off first and and the reason is because like there's there's these swaps and and again at at the um, i mean they're they're not important but let's I, I mean they are important but again i mean it's it's kind of a complex uh they're called cross-currency basis swaps right and, and so what that is is if i'm working at a bank uh, like in the u.s and a bank in canada needs money 
we do a swap and it's kind of complicated how it works in anyways but this is a, a way to measure dollar shortages right so the more shortage there is of us dollars the the more negative that premium so the more premium that the canadian bank has to pay and so what you're seeing is that this basis is getting extremely extremely low and it's not just low in canada it's low in europe it's low in japan it's low in britain so I know people will say, well, the Fed printed all of this money. Well, it wasn't enough. Um, and so absent more dollar liquidity, um, because, you know, dollar liquidity, you know, accounts for about 90% of global trade, you will start to like create conditions in which you will have contagion risk due to lack of liquidity. And it, it will be um, a very catastrophic scenario if somebody doesn't end up backing off. I think the Fed will back off first. Um, as for the front running, um, I yeah, I guess you could kind of say that the BOC um, was maybe trying to front run the Fed. Now, if you look at probabilities, it's saying that the Fed will uh, raise 100 basis points. If you look at euro dollar futures, which is a way to measure the LIBOR rate, um, which is now more the SOFOR rate, you can look at the SOFOR curve also. But this is the benchmark rate for, for banks when they're you know doing um, arms, etc., and so what you've seen there is that's actually starting to now price in uh, Fed rate cuts in December of this year. Um, before, it was about July of 2023. And when I say before, I mean like two weeks ago. So this has been brought way forward. Um, and so if, if you start to look at things like that, I think the Fed will probably cut in December because, I mean, uh, conditions like global financial conditions are deteriorating and they're deteriorating extremely rapidly. Um, and so that's, that's kind of why um, I, I don't think the BOC uh, will probably do too much uh, more um, and neither will the Fed. Uh, these, these kind of rates, when, when you start to look at rates markets, they get very complicated because, you know, there's LIBOR, ESTER, CDOR, um, which is the Canadian version of, of uh, the Canadian dollar rate. Um, and, and so there's like all of these things that you have to start to like look at. And obviously, most people don't have a Bloomberg terminal or access to a definitive data stream. So, like, you know, when people start to look at, like, oh, you know, the BOC is going to continue, I, I think that there's a lot of variables that are, are, are missing within that because these markets are extremely liquid. I mean, you're talking, you know, multi, multi trillion dollar markets, right? Um, in the bond market, I forget how much larger it is than the equity market. I think it's about double the equity market, if I remember correctly. So, I mean, these are massive markets, right? And so these are places that people really need to be looking. And when I mean bond market, I don't just mean like the two tens curve. Um, but, um, you know, it gets a little bit more complex than that. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that was a little too into the weeds. If I need to kind of break it down, I can. No, that's that's really helpful, actually. Um, an interesting insight and maybe a little bit of uh, of hope for for those individuals who are you want to get back on that that, that kind of um, back to those those lower rates. Um, interested to kind of see how that all takes shape, um, but I'll, I can always count on you to kind of kind of change my opinion and give me some something uh, forward looking uh, from 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 that perspective. Uh, Brendan, I see your hand up there, and then I think we'll probably start to wrap up here if, if, unless anybody else has um, something to add. Uh, so sorry, Brendan, go ahead. Yeah, so I've also been tracking those break-evens, um, Deer Point was mentioning. Um, uh, looking at some data, there's some data from a macro bond um, where uh, I think like a lot of the uh, sort of near-term impacts on things like um, the war in Ukraine um, are really evident in kind of like 
those short, like uh, 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 those break evens covering like the a year ahead or two, uh, and just like seeing how they jumped um, in March, and the longer term ones uh, not not quite as elevated, and then um, I think especially in the shorter term ones, like showing some signs of. Uh, easing um which uh which is kind of like it, it, we've seen that in the past uh, few weeks and then interesting to see you know this blowout inflation number uh for june in the u.s um and so kind of like a bit, bit of a contrast there one thing just like on this on, on the on the expectation side of things um that you know i've been asked been asked a lot about is you know like connection wages to prices and i think daniel you mentioned this like a little earlier um in the call about you know what like are the potential for wages are wages leading prices or lagging um i if i have to if i had to pick one of the two i'd say they are lagging prices in the sense that cost of living increases are now um you know a factor that uh employers are increasingly citing is why they're raising um wages that's something that was a uh, um uh, uh notable in the latest uh, bank of canada business outlook survey and then i think like like looking ahead you know like Okay, we've got a bit of momentum in, in wage growth now, like not matching prices, but a bit of momentum. And like, and like, what are the potentials, you know, for that to be passed on um, uh, to higher prices? You know, obviously, uh, labor is a key um, input uh, for the production process. But I think, like, on the flip side, is like um, just looking at kind of like breaking down like nominal GDP into sort of like labor share of income and uh, and corporate profits. Really, it's corporate profits where uh, things have been quite strong lately, and not and uh, sort of employee compensation as a share of net uh, domestic product. Um, uh, it's it's down slightly from uh, fr from what it was um, uh, pre pandemic, and so um, you know there, there there is some room like on the margin side of things. Um, for uh, for wages to rise without without uh, at the expense of profits potentially um, without necessarily being translated to prices um, and just kind of like obviously like the question is um, you know which, which of those two uh, like margins whether it's like on the profit side versus like uh, the, the price side um, uh, will have a will there be greater uh, pass or to um, you know like there there is we we definitely we're not in a situation for instance where like the labor share is already at like quite elevated levels and there's like no room on, on the margin side so you know there, there's I, I we'll see and you know what that means for equities I think uh, that's definitely something that people have been uh, tracking for a while now. Interesting insight. Thanks, Brendan. Um, Matt Young, I, I noticed you joined here. You're always good uh, to inject a, a question. Um, any? Did you want to jump in here before we wrap up? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just going to ask something. Um, it's it's more it's kind of micro, kind of macro, but um, yeah, I'm in Saskatchewan. It's a different market here, and I'm not going to go on about our numbers. Um, but I do want to ask some people. I've talked to a number of people here in Saskatchewan about interest rates. Mortgage rates here are much smaller than they are in the Toronto area. I think the average mortgage size in Saskatchewan is only 280, 290,000. So, I mean, interest rate hikes here affect people, not nearly as much in major, major markets, though. But I have talked to a number of people who have said, you know what? If things get really bad and I get really desperate, 
I mean, I'll just rent out a room in my house to a student for a year or two and, and collect a few hundred dollars a month to kind of offset things. And I've noticed a few people have even suggested that to, uh, you know, to, to their kids and things like that, saying, son, don't worry. You know, if things, interest rates go up, you got to renew next year. It just rent out a room in your house for a year or two. Um, I know we have a lot more single family homes than than condos you would see in Toronto or Vancouver, places like that. But I'm wondering, uh, is that something that people would discuss out there? Because I, I would think that, you know, if you're a homeowner and you got to renew your mortgage anytime in the next year, year and a half, and you're looking at, at interest rates doubling or, or, I mean, I don't even, God forbid, even tripling. I mean, you know, renting out a room in your house is something you might do. And if a lot of people do that, I just wonder if that would impact the price of the rental market at all. So I don't know if you're seeing that out there in Toronto. I'm just hearing people talking about it here as sort of like a safety net. Like, you know, I don't really normally rent out a room in my house, but hey, if interest rates really go up, then then it's something I might do. Is that even a topic of conversation among homeowners there at all or condo owners? I just thought I'd ask. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly could be. That I think that the challenge is like in, in our market and in most markets that are in, as inflated as the greater Toronto area, and perhaps there aren't any in, in, in Canada left, um, you know, even Vancouver seems to be faring a little bit better than us. Um, you know, what what goes hand in hand with this dependence on credit and this massive escalation in price is that you have a compression of cap rates in, in these markets, right? So, you know, it's not going to move the needle, I don't think, for somebody. Like, I, I wish Scott was still here to kind of, kind of, but I just don't think that there's, like, I don't think renting a room is going to create the margin of safety. Like, I don't think the 750 or even $1,500 a month that you would get for renting in a bedroom would save most people who are already in a rough enough position in, in the greater Toronto area, per se. Like, people who are in a, in a, in a uh, you know, who are bleeding out, per se, in, in the Canadian or in the greater Toronto area market, uh, they've been doing that for a while and in a lot of cases are in cash negative uh, rental positions, right? So really the the question becomes, do they want to lose money fast or slow at that point, right? And, and the the trade-off isn't so much, yeah, can I, how much, how many more people can I cram into this house to to create some income? It's, uh, should I sell now and, and realize this equity padding that I have or maybe don't have, um, so realize the loss or should I try and, and some sort of other uh, alternative, you know, method to to scrape by for the next five years and, and weather the storm of that increased interest rate without much certainty. Um, and I think that the, the only other element that I'll add there that, that might be on, a, on the qualitative side, not really as measurable, is that you're not often seeing um, individuals who are making exceptionally good financial decisions paired with people who are rushing into a crowded trade in the FOMO heat of the market kind of speculating, right? So there's a bit of a selection bias for like people who are, who are, I think that in the, in the risk on positions are in, in big risk on positions and the people who aren't are, are not really at risk. Like they don't, they probably won't need to, to, to make a move to weather the storm. I hope that clarifies things, but you know, it is interesting. And I always like talking about um, Saskatchewan specifically too, because you're, you know, I think the big thing from my perspective is your market didn't run up the way that ours did. And so you didn't have that escalating dependence. It becomes this positive feedback loop, right? Where, prices move up, people depend more on on credit to, to realize those prices to get into the market. And, and you couple that with this fear that you might never be able to own it. And now all of a sudden you've created this this interest rate trap. Um, and that's, that's scary, right? Uh, it's, it's scary for, especially for the greater Toronto area. And I think it will likely go down as the poster child of the downturn here 
um, that we're seeing nationally. Um, Peter, I noticed you had your hand up there. Did you want to chime in quickly on this note um, before we wrap up? Yeah, really quickly. Um, I, I think it's something that inter- not just renting a room, but for younger buyers looking to get into the, into the market, especially when they're looking at the outer suburbs, a lot of them, you know, and I've had a few that are looking for separate, uh, separate entrances because they're automatically based on the price point, just looking at renting up the basement and living on, you know, the top two floors. Yeah. And I think that you're even seeing like, you know, so you see some house hacking in that respect. And then you also see, um, you know, people like I've even seen already individuals moving home, like with their parents, right. Moving back in with mom and dad, um, and, uh, and renting out the, the asset to weather the storm for a little bit because they just can't make, uh, ends meet, uh, given the escalating cost of living. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and a lot of cases that becomes a proximity question as well, right. People trying to get closer to the core, uh, so that the gas expense isn't, isn't bleeding them out as quickly. Uh, Sanj, did you, do you want to say something there? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to talk on to what Peter was mentioning there. I've actually had a couple of clients that were, you know, individuals wealthy, well, I wouldn't say wealthy, but earning enough that they were able to qualify on their own for starter homes that had a basement with a separate entrance. And what they ended up doing was actually moving into the basement themselves and renting out the rest of the house, right? They'd have students in there or family, whatever it is. And some of them were even gung-ho enough to go with students and individual rooms being rented out. So they were really heavily cash flowing that property in the, uh, in the end of things. And it works out pretty well for them in the short term. We'll see how it goes over the next year or two, but that's some things I've been seeing quite a bit. I mentioned earlier on Twitter as well uh, that I've noticed probably three or four times in the last, I want to say eight months, groups of international students, like guys that would have gotten into Canada as international students, let's say in the last five years, that have paired up or come in as threes and fours or fives going in and buying a house together and it's like okay well rather than paying somebody six seven hundred bucks a month for a rent for a room plus utilities and all that stuff let's just all share the property we'll take a bedroom each we have our own space and then we'll deal with it after the fact don't recommend it but yeah i've been seeing quite a bit of that too yeah it's interesting a uh, indication of sort of like the housing version of of that belt tightening that you know is famous in, in economic thought in in the u.s during recessionary periods um interested to see like especially given deer points perspective you know as rates start if, if rates start to follow the trajectory that he's describing how how long uh it takes for the the pain of this to be fully realized um and if it's if it's not as bad as as, as i might be thinking because i you know i but I'm, I'm probably often the most bearish person in, in the room um uh, Susan, do you want to do you want to get in here with the last uh, sort of point? I see your hand up there, and uh, always nice to have you. Do you? Uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. So if you want, I just to, want to uh, say thank yeah. you for having me. I just want to say something really quickly. I think the only fear that the setback that I would have with renting my own home versus renting like investment properties that, um, you know, what if the person does something to your home in the sense that like what if they cause a fire or what if like. Um, and the other thing is like you can't effectively meter things like it's not like it's a condo where the meter's set and they're just you know they're just paying for the heat end of story like you it's almost like you have to do a division like a 60 40 you know 70 30 type thing because it's really hard to assess like who's using the laundry more than others and that kind of that stuff so that's just my thought that is uh, i mean on these like sort of up down do duplexes or small cap duplexes or even like co-living, et cetera, it is, uh, it's always difficult, right, to, to figure out how to, to equitably divide up those obligations. Um, and I think the other thing is like, I, I'll, I, I always hate to, to go, you know, into this stuff, but I think that there's some, some big challenges with the landlord and tenant board right now. And I, and I think that that might be one of the, the, um, the points that, 
you know, is manifested in the fact that we see a lot of va- vacancies. Like, I mean, if, if, if you're seeing vacancy or like, sorry, uh, vacant houses, people leaving assets vacant, which to me is just wild, like just as an economic concept. But if the, if the economics of leaving a house vacant make more sense for, for a property owner because of um, escalation or um, capital appreciation, but also because of potentially the, the, the difficulties with, and it, even if it's just backlogs, right? Like it's not even to say that either side of the aisle uh, is, is a bad actor in those cases. Um, but I think that there is some, like, I, I would always say, you know, most individuals would say, oh, you know, people are more likely to rent their house than, than sell it at a loss or, or at a, you know, if, but, but I don't know if like, to me, when I look at what's happening in the Canadian market and with rates turning around the way that they are, I see this as sort of more of a long-term cyclical event uh, heading towards, you know, the tail end of a, of a great bull run. We had a good time, guys. But um, it, so to me, it's, it's like the, and I felt this way for, for years, even before we, you know, even prior to COVID, it was like, I, th- I think that the next time that, that we see the bull run end in Canada, it's going to look like a long-term cyclical event similar to, you know, 91 to uh, or sorry, 81 to 94. And, and like, that's, that sucks. It's a, it's a big drop when you really analyze it from peak to trough, but it's not actually that bad when prices are going down, you know, 10% per year and people aren't losing their shirts and, and being forced to sell and we're not seeing mass foreclosure, mass uh, power of sales and delinquencies, et cetera. Right. It gives people uh, an opportunity to trade in and out of the market. And then you do see that combined with, the ability for people to rent as an, you know, as an offset um, that could cre- hopefully like, you know, create, I think we've already started to see on the sentiment side, the market become more sensible. You know, one of the things that I've always hoped to see is people, Canadians having a house, healthy relationship with housing. And I think the obsession uh, behind the residential asset is gone. And I think we're starting to see just, you know, in real terms, the diminishing of that household wealth. I think it was like 70% concentration of household wealth into the primary residence. Uh, these are all things that need to change. And I think that hopefully as this, you know, normalizes and we see the end of the cyclical event, we rebuild a market that has its act together a little bit more and maybe has a healthy amount of fear. Like you saw, and you always hear boomers talking about it, like, you know, all the nineties, like, and that speculation era of housing. So it'd be interesting to see how things go from here. Um, is there anything anybody wants to add before we wrap up here? Silence. It's always good. That means that uh, that means that we've let's covered a lot. Yeah, let's do it. Everybody enjoy the beautiful weather. Um, obviously, I, I did an announcement uh, that I that I launched a new podcast with uh, with Nick. I'm not going to belabor it too much, but uh, be great if you check that out. And then I'm also um, I'm I'm still posting these in the existing podcast platform. Um, we might be looking for a partner, uh, you know, just like a general sponsor for these spaces, just to cover cover some of those costs. So DM myself or Vijesh if you're interested in in kind of doing that. I don't know. I don't even know exactly what it would look like, but it's just something we're exploring. Um, if we don't find somebody, then we'll we'll just do, continue doing it the way that we are. Um, anyway, um, I think that's everything. Everybody, go enjoy the beautiful weather, and uh, we'll see you next next Thursday.